I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, and we'll be reading this morning from verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be reading verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. By way of review, as we have been saying in previous studies, the epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus. And because of the severe opposition they were facing the severe pressures to which they were subjected. Some of them, it seems, were returning to Judaism. They were renouncing their faith, returning to the rituals, the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law as a means of finding salvation. And so as to dissuade his readers from doing so, the author does two things in this epistle. One, he warns them of the consequence of such decision. To cease following Christ is to neglect so great salvation, for which neglect there is no escaping the judgment of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, he warns in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. Two, the writer throughout this epistle, as he dissuades his readers from returning to the old covenant, to the old system of worship, he warns them, or rather he impresses on them the superiority of the person and work of Christ over the religious institutions of the Old Testament. As the divine Son of God, Christ, he insists, is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He is the mediator of a better covenant. As the high priest, he supersedes all the Aaronic priests. The one sacrifice he offered is better than all the sacrifices they offered. And hence, the need for them to wholeheartedly trust in him and him alone as their source of salvation. 
Now, having argued all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 10, verse 18, regarding the supremacy, the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice for sins, the writer, from this point on, from verse 19 of chapter 10, in fact, right to the end of the epistle, turns to the practical implications of this great truth. From verse 19 of Hebrews 10 all the way to the end of the epistle, His focus is no longer on the doctrinal, theological truths related to the person and work of Christ as it is on the meaning of those truths for the lives of his readers. And so the question is, what does the priestly, sacrificial work of Christ mean for our lives as Christians? In the first place, suggested by the writer to the Hebrews, is that for us as Christians, the superior priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ means a new privilege in worship. It means a new privilege in worship. What is this new privilege we have in worship? It is this, in a word, it is this, the privilege of free, unhindered access into the holy presence of God. And here's how this truth is spelled out for us in verses 19 through 22. The writer is exhorting his readers. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, and so on and so forth. In the phrases to enter the holy place, verse 19, house of God, verse 21, draw near, verse 22, we have there the language and imagery of worship. And if we ask the question, what is the word therefore referring to? It is referring to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where the writer spoke of the fact that in view of Jesus' entry into heaven as our great sympathizing high priest, we should then draw near to the throne of God with confidence. So he picks up from that line, And he says, therefore, since we have confidence, let us draw near. Now, having stated in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that it was only the priests who had access into the holy places, the writer is here making the point that by virtue of Jesus' work of redemption as the great high priest, Every believer in Jesus Christ can now freely, without dread, without terror, enter into his holy presence, drawing near to him in worship and in fellowship. Not just at select times, not just at select seasons, not just weekly, but every single moment of every single day. Now think of it. Under the Old Covenant, as we have been seeing from the book of Hebrews, the people of Israel, the lay people, as some would call them, dared not enter the holy and awesome presence of God. 
In fact, they could only go as far as where? The door of the tabernacle. If they proceeded any further, we know what would happen to them. If you know your Old Testament very well, they would be struck dead. And even when it came to those who were authorized to serve in the tabernacle, not everyone, not every one of those people who was authorized to serve in the tabernacle had the privilege to enter the Holy of Holies. They likewise would be struck dead if they ventured to enter. Here, for example, God's warning in Numbers chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. God is speaking and God is issuing this warning. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. But deal thus with them that they may live and not die. When they come near to the most holy things, Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. But they shall not go in to look at the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. As we have said, not even the high priest who was privileged to enter the holy of holies could go into that place as he desired. He could not go into the Holy of Holies at will. His entry into the holy place, into the most holy place, was restricted, it was limited to just once per year. Once per year. And even when he entered into the most holy place, he had to ensure that he did not have full view of the symbolic presence of the holy and awesome God. In fact, listen to the stipulations the Lord outlined to Moses in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, as well as verses 12 and 13. This is against the background, you know the account, when Nadab and Abihu, they dared, they ventured to approach God, offering what the writer calls strange fire. And right after that, God gave this warning to Moses. He says this, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Here's what God is saying. Listen, tell him that even when he would come into the holy place, he cannot see even my symbolic presence. He had to burn incense, and the smoke of that incense would cover that area at the mercy seat. Why? Because even though he has the privilege of entering the holy place, he cannot even look upon my symbolic presence. Now, friends, those were the kinds of restrictions that were imposed on both people and priests when it came to the matter of approaching God in worship. 
And here in verses 19 through 22 of our text, the writer is celebrating the enormous privilege, yes, the enormous privilege you and I have as Christians to draw near to God, to get close to God in worship and in fellowship, no longer in fearful, servile dread, but in peaceful, assured confidence. What a privilege. Now, as regards this matter of drawing near to God, this privilege of drawing near to God, the writer, notice in this passage, he calls attention to at least two things. He calls attention, number one, to the premise on which we are to draw near to God, and number two, the posture with which we are to approach, with which we are to draw near to God. We'll have time this morning for only just the first, the premise on which we are to draw near to God. The premise on which we draw near to God. That is to say, the basis, the grounds on which we approach God. And the question is, what basis, on what basis do you and I, as Christians, draw near to God? Notice in the very first verse, we draw near to God because we have confidence to enter the holy places. And of all the grounds that the writer will enumerate, the grounds of our approach to God, cited in verses 19 through 22, this seems to be the overarching one, the leading one. The premise on which we draw near to God is this, that we have confidence to do so. According to one lexicon, the Greek word translated confidence relates to a state of boldness. Yes, we know that. Courage and fearlessness, especially, and here's what I want to get us at, especially in the presence of persons of high rank. Parisia, that's a word for confidence. It speaks particularly of boldness and courage in the face of someone, in the presence of someone of high rank. You'll find, for example, this is the word that's used. It's a word that's used in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, of Peter and John as they proclaim Christ before the hostile religious authorities. Word of God tells us there in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, having been with Jesus gave them that Parisia, that confidence, that boldness, that even in the face, even the presence of the most hostile forces, they could stand and they could say, listen, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. It is a word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, when he wrote concerning Christ, that in him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, some commentators argue that as used here, the word confidence is far more than a subjective feeling. The word conveys more the idea of freedom and authorization. As such, our ability to enter the presence of God as believers in Christ stems from the freedom or authorization of access that has been granted to us on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. We have confidence to enter the holy places. What privilege. Think back of the restrictions of the Old Testament saints. 
Think of the fact that even the priests, even the high priests, had restrictions placed on them when it came to entering the presence of God. And here the writer is saying, look, we have confidence, we have boldness to enter the holy and awesome presence of God. And I've noticed that the verb have here is, in verse 19, is a present tense participle. And what does that mean? The text effectively is saying this. Literally, since we are having confidence to enter the holy places. You'll notice there, he's not so much giving an imperative as he is stating by way of indicative the reality that we are having present continuous participle. We, in other words, we are constantly having confidence to enter the holy places. And what is implied here, beloved, surely is this, that as Christians, our access to the presence of God, our access to the holy and awesome presence of God is an ongoing, never-ending reality. Here's a blessed truth this morning. Having come to faith in Christ, here's the point. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, need not cower. We need not retreat. Why? Because we are having constant access into the presence of God, on account of which we can come boldly, not sheepishly, but boldly into the very presence of God. Now, if the word folk, if the, if the focus of the word confidence is on the believer's subjective feeling of courage and assurance, and of course, that's how it appears in the text, if the word speaks of the believer's subjective feeling, subjective feeling of courage and assurance to enter the presence of God, then we need to note what this boldness or confidence is not. For sure, it does not mean that we approach God, the presence of God, arrogantly. It does not mean that we approach the presence of God flippantly. It doesn't mean we approach the presence of God irreverently. And how do we know that? Because we know that because whereas we are invited in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, we are also warned in chapter 12 verses 28-29 regarding the need to offer to God acceptable worship. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. You see, there are two extremes today and in some circles you'll find People suggesting, in fact, if not by way of words, by way of attitudes, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the triune God, is our body. And that's not the case. We are to recognize, my friends, that we can approach God. We can come to him without fear. We can come to him without dread. But God is to be held with reverence by those who would approach him. The fact is, listen to this, the confidence with which you and I draw near to God, beloved, is not one of brazen presumption, but one of bold yet humble faith. This confidence stems not from our sense of worthiness, personal worthiness, but from our conviction regarding the merits, the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. 
This confidence is grounded in the assurance that we've been cleansed, that we've been forgiven of our sins, and this confidence that stems from the forgiveness of our sins is not, and I want to say this, is not primarily a subjective feeling. Because we might well be forgiven of our sins and yet not feel it. This confidence that stems from a sense of sins forgiven is not primarily and essentially a subjective feeling. How do we know that? Because if you go to the last paragraph, which we studied last week, in Hebrews chapter 10, 15 through 18, we see there that it is the product of, quote, the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us concerning such forgiveness. Look now at the specific authorizing factors which afford us grounds for drawing near to God. The overarching grounds on which we draw near to God, the overarching premise on which we draw near to God and which we approach God, is the fact that we are having confidence. So, the question is, what are the specific authorizing factors under this large heading that accounts that forms the basis for our approaching God. According to the last phrase of verse 19, we approach God, we draw near to God in worship. Here it comes, by the blood of Jesus. We approach God by the blood of Jesus. Because of Jesus' shed blood for our sins, the writer is saying, we have the freedom, we have the authorization, we have the privilege to come before God in prayer, in worship, in fellowship. The reason being that it was by his blood that was shed for us to purge our sins, that blood of his which propitiated, in other words, which satisfied the wrath of God against us, that blood was that which made us acceptable to God. It was that blood which made us worthy to approach God, to stand before God, to worship God, to serve God. We approach him on the premise, on the grounds of his shed blood. And so Paul will write in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 that it was through the blood of Christ, the blood of his cross, that our Lord Jesus made peace. It is therefore the blood of Jesus and faith and trust in Christ and his shed blood that gives us the right of approach to a holy and righteous God. And what this amounts to, my friends, is this. We could say this by way of summary, that apart from the shed blood of Christ, apart from the reality of Christ's shed blood for your sins and my sins, there is no right of approach to God nor true acceptable worship of God. It is a shed blood of Christ which sets the terms for worship that's pleasing, that's acceptable to God. Which means this, and I say this out of love, I say this with all respect, that if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have never come to faith and trust in him, if you have never repented of your sins, 
that you are not qualified to worship God. Now, that's not a popular teaching, and it sounds mean, it sounds harsh, but here's the truth, beloved. I say this as one who understands what the Word of God says, who understands what the Word of God teaches, and when we look clearly in the Word of God, the Word of God says here that our right of approach, our privilege in approaching God in worship, in fellowship, is through the blood, the shed blood of Christ. By implication, faith in that blood And how do we explain that? The fact is, dead in trespasses and sins, and defiled by sins, here's the reality. An unsaved person, if you're an unsaved person, if you're not a Christian, you cannot draw near to God, dead in sin, defiled by sin, until you have been purged, until you have been cleansed, pardoned from your sins. That's what the Word of God teaches In terms of the premise, then, on which we draw near to God, number one, we draw near to God by the blood of Jesus. But secondly, we draw near to God through the body of Jesus. That body that was pierced on the cross, as is spelled for us in verse 20, which speaks of the holy places, that he, Christ, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. This verse makes it clear that the curtain that Christ opened for us to gain access to God was not the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem, but he's talking about what? The curtain of his flesh, that is to say his body. The word of God is saying here that his body was pierced. He opened up the way to God through his flesh, that is through his pierced body. Essentially what we have here then is the gospel of Christ and him crucified. The writer is affirming here, beloved, that access to God, access to the holy presence of God was opened for us by our once crucified Savior. That through the crucifixion, his body was torn, his body was rent, such that the partition of hostility, of alienation between God and man has been removed, has been taken out of the way. Here's what Paul says, Colossians 1, 21, 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by his flesh in death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You remember that very interesting incident that occurred the day that our Lord Jesus died? The day that Jesus died, right at the moment that he died. What we learn back in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Remember what happened? The Bible says the veil of the temple was what? Rent, split from top to bottom. Now here's the point. That was not an accident. The writer clearly is seizing on this, evidently perhaps seizing on this bit of narrative. And I'm saying this was no accident. This was clearly a supernatural act of God. In fact, when we consider how thick that curtain was, we considered it some time ago, that was no normal accident. That was clearly a supernatural work of God. And what was God saying there? God was saying, listen, through the death of my son, the way of access into my holy presence is now open. Come right in. That's what, that's what he's saying. And if you notice the text, the author describes this arrangement, this provision of access to God 
Here's how he describes it. He describes it as a new and living way that he opened for us. He describes it as a new way, as a living way. Jesus opened the way to the holy presence of God for us. And I want for us, before we look at this new and living way, notice those words. He opened the way to the holy presence of God. You could underline these two words, for us. And what is that suggesting? It's suggesting this simply, beloved, that you and I could never get into the presence of God on our own. In fact, this is not the first time the writer is making reference to something that Christ did for us. Because you recall, back in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says this, that Christ has gone as a forerunner into the inner place that is in heaven, behind the curtain, on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, For Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us or on our behalf. And what's the point here? The point is this, that no one dares even attempt to work their way to God. Listen, if you try to work your way to God, you, you know what kind of religion that is, my friend? That is a religion of death. That is a religion of hell because the truth is there's no one who works his or her way into the presence of God. To enter God's presence, we need the person of Christ. We need his shed blood. We need his pierced body. We need his atoning death to work on our behalf. My friends, this underscores the truth of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and what? Not of yourselves. We need Christ to work for us. We need a great high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ to work for us, to get us to heaven. And how do we get there? We get there not by trying. We get there by trusting in his shed blood, in his pierced body that was broken for us there on the cross for sins. Now, the question is, why is the way to God, opened by Christ, characterized as a new way? Think of that for a moment. He says, this way opened up for Christ, by Christ, through his flesh, that is, through his body, whereby we can get into the presence of God, is a new way. Why is it a new way? It is a new way because, you see, it emerges from a new covenant. It, it emerges from a new arrangement. Under the old covenant, remember, as we have been seeing, the priests had to stay within their prescribed limits, their prescribed boundaries. The people had to stay at the door of the tabernacle. Even the high priest who was privileged to enter could not enter as he wished. But here's the point. Enters the Lord Jesus and the way he opened to us through his shed blood, through his pierced body is a new way. It's a new way. It's a new way. It is a new way because it emerges from a new covenant. This access to God that Christ has opened for us through his pierced body is a new way. Why? Because it is a way that has never been enacted before. You see, in the past, access to God was gained through the blood of beasts. But with the appearance of Christ, access to God is now through the blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. 
This access to God that Christ has opened up for us in his flesh is a new way because whereas under the old covenant there were many sacrifices offered day by day, year by year, under the new covenant comes Christ and he offers one sacrifice for all times whereby the word of God says we are perfected forever. This way to the holy presence of God, beloved, is a new way. Because according to the writer, it's a new way. But more than that, he says it's a living way. It's a living way. And why is it a living way? How is it a living way? Because it is a way, here it comes, it is a way that is connected with what? A risen living Savior. The priests, remember, they, of the Old Testament, remember when we were in those passages dealing with the priesthood, the priest, they could not continue permanently. Why? By reason of death. But he continues forever. Why? Because he has a permanent priesthood. Why? In consequence of his resurrection life, he ministers, the word of God tells us, in the power of a resurrected life. We see that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. He's a high priest who ministers by an indestructible life as a source of eternal life, the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 19. His way to God is therefore the living way. How could it not be? He's the source of eternal life. He's life itself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It has to be a living way because it's connected with a living Savior who offers eternal life. The premise on which we draw near to God, not only do we draw near to God by the shed blood of Christ and by the broken body of Christ, but thirdly, we draw near to God, look at verse 21, we draw near to God through the priestly ministry of Jesus. We draw near to God through the priestly ministry of Jesus. And just how great a priest is he? How great a priest is our Lord Jesus? Well, we only have to recall some of the many feats he accomplished as a, as a high priest for us, as a great high priest, a title which no priest in the Old Testament bore. Yes, there were priests. There was a high priest, but none of them was referred to as the great high priest. Only our Lord Jesus had the distinction of that title. And as the great high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, he passed through the heavens. He passed through the heavens. There was no need for him to pass through an earthly tabernacle. Why? Because he serves in the true tabernacle in heaven, the word of God says. The priests of the Old Testament... They ministered before the symbolic presence of God. He ministers in the very presence of God for us. That's how great a priest he is. And there in the presence of God, Hebrews 9 verse 24, he is seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Hebrews chapter 1, 8 verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Hebrews 8 Verse 1, what makes him so great is the fact 
that having completed his offering, having offered that one sacrifice, a sacrifice of himself, the work was done, the work was over, he took his seat at the right hand of God. The priests of the Old Testament had to be standing daily, ministering daily. Why? Because their work was never done. There was constant need to deal with sin. Our Lord Jesus, by one sacrifice, he presented to God, he perfected those who trusted him forever, and having done that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is he saying? The work of redemption is done. Here's the good news, beloved. What must sinners do? What must you do if you're not saved? Come to Jesus, who is the perfect, the great high priest. My first question this morning is, where do you stand in relation to God? Have you drawn near to him? Have you come near to him? Have you approached him through faith in him as your Savior, as your Lord? Have you been cleansed and forgiven of your sins? If not, then you're not in a position to draw near to him. The Bible teaches that you're in a relationship not of nearness to God, but of alienation from God, hostility to God, a condition in which you're constantly, constantly, moment by moment, minute by minute, under the wrath of God. John 3, verse 18, the one who is not believing in him, that is to say the one who has not trusted in him, is not trusting in him, is under the wrath of God, abides on him forever. The good news this morning is this. The way is open. You can come. But somebody says this morning, you don't know my life. You don't know how wretched I am. You don't know my sins. You don't know how awful and terrible I am. My friends, here's the good news. Our Lord Jesus gives the assurance in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says this, that the one who comes to him, he will in no wise, in no way cast out. That is the gospel. It is the gospel for sinners who are called to draw near, not the righteous, not those who think themselves above sin. It is those who know themselves to be sinners. The good news this morning is this. A way has been opened through Christ. It's a new and living way which he has consecrated, which he has inaugurated for us through his body. And we can walk right to the presence of God. Listen, without some pope, without some earthly priest. Let me tell you, Father cannot save you. Somebody says, well, we shouldn't be preaching like that. But listen, here's the truth. A lot of people are on their way to hell. Why? Because they're looking to some priest. They're looking to some priest. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest, the great high priest, the one who sacrificed himself, the one who laid down his life for our sins, who gives us access into the very presence of the holy and righteous God. Have you come to him? If not, why not? May God grant that this would be so for his name's sake. Amen.